Uh, if you've been with us for some time, you know that we've been preaching through the book of First Thessalonians, which we've covered over a period of 10 weeks. Um, but if you're visiting and you wonder why did they pick that passage, because this is where we're up to and it's our normal habit here as a church is that we preach through whole books of the Bible from start to finish and we're about to wrap up First Thessalonians this morning uh, before we begin to go into a series uh, leading into Christmas where we're focusing on the theme is things we sing at Christmas. So we're going to take up some of the themes that are presented in common traditional Christmas carols and have a look at what the Bible has to say regarding those themes and then we'll do something on the Trinity in January. Then we'll do, get back to Acts in February. If you really needed to know that far in advance, if you're the sort of person who needs to know what's coming ahead, I have satisfied your curiosity. Otherwise, I've just wasted a bit of time. So we will not waste more time. We shall spend some time in prayer and look to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that what we are looking at this morning is indeed your word. It is your word given to us that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. We thank you that in your word you reveal to us who you are. You also show us what we are truly like and what we were created to be. And you show us what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to restore a relationship with you. And Lord, as a restored people... We have parts in your word where you instruct your people how we are to live and to conduct ourselves in this life as followers of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we pray that the work of your Holy Spirit might be in me and all of us, that we might hear and respond rightly uh, to a way that is worthy of the calling of the gospel and allow us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't believe this is going to surprise anybody here. I have never been Miss Universe. In fact, I've never even applied to enter Miss Universe. Now, there was part of me that thought that there was a time when the man won it, but I Googled it. That must have been some other competition um, because when I Googled it, it came up with the result that someone who was previously a man tried to be an entrant this year and they were rejected. But whether you've ever seen anything by way of Miss Universe or any of these beauty pageants or not, and I can't say I've ever watched one, but you see enough of them depicted in movies and things like that to know that there's a process where they kind of give a little speech as part of it. And if I was to quiz you and say, what is the one thing, even people who've never watched a beauty pageant in life, what is the one thing that they always include in their speech? Anyone want to have a crack at it? Oh, Samuel, no one knows beauty pageants quite like Samuel. World peace. World peace. You guarantee it's going to come out every single time. And it sounds good. It's a wonderful thing. It's something we should desire. But I wonder if ever in those sort of interview scenarios, if the people who are asking the questions ever said, what do you mean by that? And I wonder what answer they would give if they were asked that question. My guess is they would probably answer something along the lines of, we don't want to have wars anymore. We don't want to see conflicts between nations. We don't want to see conflicts within nations between people groups. But if that is purely the target of what it means to live in a world that is peaceful, I think you'll find that's actually a very small percentage 
of the hostility that exists in our world. Odds are extremely high that every single person, or at least the majority of people in this room, have experienced conflict of some form during 2018. And I would imagine that very small percentage of any of that is nation against nation or people group against people group. You could say potentially the opposite of peace might be hostility. And if you were to turn on the news on any given night, it'd be very interesting to take stats on what percentage of the news stories are stories that have arisen out of hostility either between two people or two countries or whatever it is. Even in a Christian environment, hostility still happens. Christians are not perfect. We've seen hostility amongst churches. But even what we might call our country as being a peaceful country, there's still a lot of stuff that happens, isn't there? Particularly if it is true that my presumption that the majority of these people in this room have experienced something in the way of hostility this year. Now, this church to which Paul is writing in Thessalonica, it wasn't a bad church. Matter of fact, it's one of the churches that Paul speaks quite favourably towards. Like when he opens up, he gives thanks to God for the way in which they have responded to the gospel. He gives thanks to God for the love that they have for one another, how Christians all in the surrounding areas are looking to them as an example of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. If I was to summarise in a few sentences where we've come so far, I'd say that the book is primarily about the fact that Jesus one day is going to return and they need to live in light of the fact that the one who has saved them is one day coming to be and complete their salvation. Therefore, they should live lives worthy of God, desiring to please him in every way. Previously, Paul had said they were being called into holiness, to live lives of holiness. A process that will be completed when they see Jesus face to face. And because it's an ongoing desire of God to keep making his people more and more like Jesus to grow in our sanctification, to grow in holiness. We've seen a number of times Paul saying things they're already doing, he's thanking God for them and he's encouraging them even in those things. Do them more and more. That in no area of our Christian life have we arrived or reached the perfect standard of Christ whom we are following. Today we're at the 2nd December. Major time mark in this world. We are one month from hot cross buns being available in shops again. But it's also roughly around one month, which is the point that I was really going to make, not the hot cross buns, that we're getting close to New Year's. When people start to think about making new resolutions, these are what I want different about this next year. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have resolutions that aren't just all about things of this world that I want to grow and abound more and more in my knowledge and my love and service of Jesus Christ. That's a good resolution. And hopefully, unlike your gym membership that you took out on January 2nd and then used for a week and never used again, hope it's not something that fizzes out 
throughout the year. But if we all belong to what was referred to in this passage as the God of all peace, then that should affect who we are in every sphere of our life. And as we look at this passage this morning, we see that peace is one of the driving motives throughout the entirety of the passage as Paul wraps up this book. Speaking of relationships between leaders and their congregation, between relationships with one another, the relationship of prophecies and the people of God, and then lastly, a summary and how God will go about doing his work. The first one's a little bit of an awkward one to, to speak upon when you're a leader of a church, because it's talking about the relationships between church leaders and the people within the church. It seems a little bit awkward because it's something that I, as a church leader, would benefit from. Samuel and Ray would also benefit from. And certainly if I was to say, we're not preaching through 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to skip, pick this one passage, I'm just going to do a sermon only on 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, then you might have a right to say, Steve, I think you're being a little bit arrogant, being a little bit proud, you just want to do things to your own end. But what we are doing is preaching our way through a book and allowing God to set the agenda and the things that he's put forward before us. But what God is telling us through Paul in these verses says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and be at peace among yourselves. Now, we're not given insight as to whether or not there is a particular problem in the Thessalonian church, whether something has happened in which there's caused some people in the church to be disrespectful towards the leaders who are appointed in the church. We know that it was Paul's habit, we see expressed in his missionary journeys, that he appointed elders in all of the churches. And so he says, because of their role, you should respect them and esteem them because of the work in which they do. Now, there can be a problem with verses like these. Is Again, Christian churches are not immune from leaders who have abused the authority that have been given to them. And it would also be not correct to address verses like these and focus only upon what the rest of the church needs to do. When there is, in fact, expressions about what are the expectations and responsibilities of members of a church, but it also speaks about expectations and responsibilities of those who would lead them. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, it speaks about elders as being shepherds who care for their people, In 1 Timothy and also in Titus, it speaks about the high standard of character that is expected of them. How they are to teach, how they are to labour and work hard in preaching and teaching, correcting error, praying over the sick. And here in this passage, the emphasis is upon their hard work. So, elders, we are to work hard. You're not just to do five minutes on a Sunday morning. We have to work hard. Paul actually uses a term that's used usually for manual physical labour. Now, you could ask Paul and Matthew did the, um, the school of preachers thing. We went later on to find out that preparing sermons is hard work. It's often a discussion that we have amongst other pastors. You think, it doesn't make sense. Someday, if you, just, if you happen to have a day with a whole day spent on reading and preparing for a sermon, you think, I spent my whole day sitting on my backside and I'm exhausted. 
We need to work hard. It says that we are over you, not in an authoritative dictatorship method, but kind of like a father, and that's the language that Paul has used in terms of his relationship with the Thessalonian church so far, a father who cares and guides for the good of those who are under their care and who admonish you, which speaks of guiding and directing someone to different and right ethical or moral actions. When leaders live out their expectations according to the character laid out before them, according to the responsibilities and the nature of the role given to them, and the congregation respect and esteem them because of the role given to them, we have a church where there is harmony, there is peace. Anyone who's been in a church where there's been disharmony between people in the church and leadership would know that it's not a peaceful or a pleasant environment to be in. But as he goes on to say, be at peace among yourselves, it's hard to know, does this apply to the relationships between leaders and the people? Or does it apply to the instructions he's about to give about the relationships with one another? And rightly, it could be intentionally be placed where it is because it applies rightly to both. So we move from relationships of peace between leaders and the people now to peace with one another. Firstly, speaking about relationships with those who are struggling in three different ways. Saying, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. The idle. Remember when we went back to chapter 4, it appeared there were some in the Thessalonian church who were able, had opportunity to work, but had chosen, for whatever reason, not to work. And as a result, to be a burden upon the financial support of the church that which they were part of. Here he begins with some soft words to say, admonish them, encourage them, help steer them in the right direction. But as we know, if you've read Second Thessalonians, Paul's advice wasn't taken well. And he goes a little bit harder in Second Corinthians 3. He says, command those who will not be busy at work, but instead are wasting their time being busybodies. Secondly, it speaks about encouraging the faint-hearted. Literally means the small of the soul, those who are struggling, those who are hurting, those who are discouraged. And it reminds me a little bit of the nature of God as expressed in Psalm 34. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if that's the nature of our God and his dealing with his people, then if we are to be image bearers of God, should that not also be characteristic in how we deal with one another to help the weak whether psychologically spiritually emotionally whatever way in which they're weak to help them and all three of them were called as a church family to lovingly nurture one another in our times of despair in our struggles in the areas in which we are broken to bring them to spiritual maturity and blessing. And it's interesting to note that these instructions given to brothers here in verse 14, it's the exact same term used in verse 12 where the brothers to whom he was referring to was the everyday people of the church. It's not just the leaders or the pastors who are involved in this caring. 
it would also be irresponsible to say that this passage means that the leaders and the elders do not be involved in these things. They, they too should be involved. But to say that it's not exclusively the role of the, the leaders within a church. But not only do we admonish, encourage and help, Paul adds, but be patient with them all. Because as we support and nurture and care for one another in our struggles, it doesn't always go according to plan. It doesn't always go smooth sailing. People are broken. Healing and change doesn't always happen as quickly and instantly as we'd like it to. When it comes to admonishing someone, it would be extremely rare to speak to someone about an area in their life which needs to be brought into conformity with Jesus Christ, where someone says, praise the Lord. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I really hope that, that, that if there was something wrong with me, you would tell me, and I'm going to change that instantly. It happens sometimes. But sometimes people get upset. Sometimes people even get fiery and angry that you might even speak about an area of their life. And because of that, we need to be patient with them all. When people are discouraged and hurt, flinging them Romans 8.28 doesn't make it instantly altogether better as they magic band-aid all done. We need to be patient with one another. For those who are weak psychologically, spiritually or emotionally, things more often than not don't happen instantly. There's a series of small, slow steps. We need to be patient with one another. But when we have the whole body caring for the whole person of the whole body, then you have a church family where there is harmony, where there is peace. And because the way in which someone might respond to your encouraging, your admonishing, your urging, may not always be perfect, how do we respond rightly to them? Well, firstly, we need to remember the patience which God has had with us. God is very patient with us on a daily basis. And if we appreciate his patience, we should do likewise to others. And second, which is implied by the first, we don't return evil for evil. It is a common natural human reaction. When someone does something to you, you want to do something in return. The model that Jesus gave before us is he never reviled when he was reviled. He absorbed so much injustice and dispensed nothing but blessing and grace. There's so much like the teaching of Jesus who said, bless those who curse you. Pray for your enemies, love your enemies. And here Paul says, seek to do good to one another. Seek to do good to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to everyone, even those who don't know Christ. But it's not uncommon to see the Bible give that primacy to those who are of the household of faith. We see it again in Galatians chapter 6. And when people are seeking to bless those even who oppose them, you'll see harmony and peace in their relationships with one another. But when I've gone and put this all under a banner of how they deal with one another, you might question, where do verses 16 to 18 fit in? You might think, well, that sounds very individualistic. What do I mean? This has got to do with how we deal with one another. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
what we don't see so easily in English is every single one of these are addressed in the plural. It's not addressed to a number of individuals, but to them as a collective body. Some have even taken this to understand it as these are being instructions for how they conduct themselves when they are gathered together in their Sunday church services. That they should be gatherings marked by rejoicing, praise, ongoing prayer and thanksgiving. And if our focus is on recognising his greatness, rejoicing in all that he is and all that he has given, then we're naturally going to respond in thanks as to acknowledging he is the one who's given us all things and delight in coming before him in prayer. When your mind is on all those things, it's not on things that are complaining, that are hostile, that are worldly, and there is peace and harmony. Whether or not there's merit to the thesis this is written to how you conduct yourself when you come together to the church, it is still God's will for every single one of us. And while people tend to pick a verse and they just read the bit um, to give thanks in all circumstances, this is all one big sentence. It is God's will for every single one of us that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean handing your, your, your resignation from your job. Sorry, can't do it. God tells me I've got to pray without ceasing and rejoice all the time. Apparently, I'm not allowed to pray without ceasing while I'm driving an aeroplane or flying an aeroplane. No, but just these should be things that are regular, habitual in the life of followers of Jesus Christ. So far, all the logical thread of how peace fits together has been going good. Peace between the leaders and the people. Peace and harmony with one another. But as Paul moves over and speaks about the spirit and prophecies, you might think, what on earth has that got to do with peace? Except for if in the back of your mind, right at this point in time, you're thinking, well, depending on what Steve says about prophecy, there might be peace here or there might be conflict. Because I can assure you in a gathering like this, there will be people who have very different views and that's okay. It's not a central issue. So prophecies and the people of God. I think the first thing I need to say is that when you heard this read, this is probably the verses that most pricked your attention and thought, I wonder what he's going to say about that. And it's not the central point of the passage, so we may not spend as much time on it as you may like. If we were preaching through 1 Corinthians and we got to chapters 12 to 14, then that certainly would be the time to go into detailed treatment on the topic. But it's also worth prefacing by saying that Throughout all of church history, people have had differing views on these things. As in what prophecy is? Is it is something that has ongoing relevance or is it something that finished at the end of the time of the apostles? Even amongst the, the leadership of the church, we would have minor differences of view regarding of how these things play out. So that's also a preface of from here on in. I'm not saying what's the collective view of all the elders, um, but speaking my convictions on the matter. But the best place to start is not Steve's convictions, but if we're going through First Thessalonians, we might want to see what's God saying through Paul to the Thessalonians. He says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Again, we've got a phrase which is hard to determine which it belongs to, that do not quench the spirit, as in 
Does it apply to what's gone previous? As in, don't suppress the Spirit's work who wants to work you together into conformity and harmony in your relationships, or if it is in connection here with prophecy. Certainly, biblically, there's a strong connection between the Spirit and the giving of prophecy. But as you look through your New Testament, you don't really see anyone described as a prophet after Jesus. But you do see other New Testament references beyond Jesus' resurrection and ascension, speaking about those who continue to prophesy. Probably the most interesting words come out of that section, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Remember the church in Corinth? They were a church who were messed up. They got spiritual gifts really, really wrong. Like if anyone's a wrong place to go, you think they're the the ones not to look to. And Paul says to them, pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. In my mind, if there was ever a church to say, spiritual gifts, you stay away from them, Corinthian church was the church to do it. Yet he tells them, earnestly desire, especially that you may prophesy. As I said, over history, there's been a very big spectrum of views as to what prophecy is and whether it has any ongoing relevance today. Some would say, well, these prophecies must refer to the Old Testament scriptures. Certainly, 1 Peter talks about the prophecies, each man carried along by the Holy Spirit, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. But here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is saying, regarding these prophecies, don't despise them, but test them, because some are good and worth holding on to, and some are not worth going anywhere near. Now, that's a description that probably wouldn't fit well if you're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. I don't think God's going to say, some of my, some of my words are good, hold on to the good bits. You can imagine the dangers that would happen if you think there's some good bits of the Bible you hold on to and bad bits you just chuck away. So that one doesn't fit particularly well. There are others who are the position, and this is my position most of my early Christian life, that prophecies were to cease at the end of the apostolic age in the first century, remembering that all of the references to prophecy in the New Testament were written during that time, during the first century. But the way as I look at it, if the Bible intended those to cease entirely, the Bible should have spoken about how they would cease entirely. There is a verse in 1 Corinthians that speaks about we prophesy in part, we know in part, and then when the complete or the perfect has come, we will no longer do this. Now, those who hold this view would say that's when the canon of Scripture has come. But throughout the rest of your Bible, any time when the perfect has come or the complete has come is a reference to the end of all times. Because in having the Scriptures, we don't have perfectly knowledge everything about God. We know everything we need to know about God in this life. So I'm not convinced that the Bible gives me a reason to say that that ceased in the first century. Now in this room I know we've got people from every three one of those perspectives. Even the elders, I don't know if we've got all three, but we've certainly got some diversity there. So again, this is my convictions, not the teaching and the, the opinion of every single elder in the church. Because the term gets used so broadly, it's probably helpful to define what I don't mean just as much as what I do mean. Because it gets used in all sorts of weird and crazy ways. 
by no means do I believe for even a second that God will give any new or additional revelation than what he has given in his word. If the scriptures itself say that your scriptures are inspired by God, that you may be complete and equipped for every good work, we do not need anything else. 2 Peter 1.3, we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. So you can rule out that by this term that I would understand as meaning God is giving us new insights about him, about his plans, or how we are to live. Nor is it a gift that provides this spiritual version of a horoscope to give a, a rough, vague prediction about someone's future. But rather, I would see it to be a spirit-given message that is in accordance with what has already been known to be true of the word of God that speaks to a specific situation. But the Bible also gives us some guidelines, a way how we can write things off. Firstly, that it will not contradict or go beyond what has already been written. Hence the reason why both here and and 1 Corinthians says, test these things. In order to test them, you need to have something to test them against, and that would be what we know is definitely the word of God in the scriptures. It says the speaker must acknowledge Christ's deity and his humanity in 1 John chapter 4. Must be someone who acknowledges the grace and forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection in Galatians 1. Jesus spoke that it must be, you'll know a prophet by their fruits, so there must be someone whose character is in line with godly character in Matthew 7. And it must be something which is for the building up of the church. So in summary, something that is theologically sound, in line with what God has already given us, not additional, not new revelation through a person of godly character towards a particular situation or circumstance for the building up of the church. Now, with all of that out of the way, which may have been unnecessary to go into detail, but satisfied maybe some curiosity and frustrated some curiosity. What has this got to do with peace in the church? Well, if things are not tested... As in, if the people themselves and their character is not tested, if the message which they bring is not tested, then what's going to happen is you're going to have character and teaching that is going to lead a church off into chaos. It's going to affect the unity, harmony and peace in the church. If someone claims, oh, I have a word of prophecy and it's not in accordance to with what God has already made known, it's not from a godly person, it's going to lead the church down a very bad tangent when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 when he's speaking about tongues and prophecy he says our God's not a confusion a God of confusion but a God of peace so as Paul is speaking do not despise prophecy he's not saying don't just throw prophecy out don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but don't accept everything that claims to be prophecy or every person who claims to have a prophetic message. Now, as I said, this is far from being a central issue and something which makes the elders, we have difference of views. So if you're not at all convinced or you think what I've said is the most ridiculous thing you've heard all week, then you can look at your verses right in front of you and say, well, I've tested that and I think it's worth chucking out and that's all right. But one thing you do need to be convinced about is, as God, Paul continues to go on, is that 
the God who has called these Thessalonians into relationship with Christ, he will do the things that he's laid out before them. Paul closes with a prayer, a declaration, a request, an instruction and grace. He prays that may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul has been calling to peace, they belong to the God of all peace. If the Thessalonians were to try to obey all the commands that Paul has laid out, they're not going to be able to do it. They need the working, enabling of the God of all peace. Who is it working at within them to sanctify them through and through? In order to become more obedient, we must first become more Christ-like or more sanctified. Notice he, he prays that God would sanctify us completely. God needs to do that work. He changes us. Because if we are not changed by God, our behaviours and our response will never change. Not only is God is actively changing us, he is preserving us. Paul goes on to say that you might be blameless, doesn't just say that you might be blameless, but that you be kept blameless. That the God who has declared us blameless in his sight as Jesus' death on our behalf has paid our price and we've been given the righteousness of Christ, we will be kept blameless by God. And if that itself is not assuring for you, Paul goes on to repeat, and God is faithful. He will do it. He will. We all know people who say they're going to do something and they don't do it, but this is the almighty God. He is faithful. He will do it. He prays, asks for them, church to pray for him. Even apostles need prayer. He encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Most of you will be relieved to know that I didn't do that to any of you this morning, um, except the direct family members possibly in our household. But in that culture, not only was it a, a sign of friendliness, but even when there was conflict between parties, it was something that they would do as a sign of saying, everything is right between us. We might not do that. That might actually cause disunity if we were to try to do it here, whereas our modern equivalent would be possibly a handshake, and I'm quite okay with that. And then he goes and commands them, read this whole thing to everyone. It's interesting, after he said, talk about prophecy saying, test it, hold on good, get rid of the bad stuff. Here he says, mate, you, I'm commanding you to read this to everyone in your church. And maybe Paul had some sense that he was writing scripture in this letter. But throughout the letters, Paul has thanked God for the salvation that has happened in the Thessalonians, for what God has begun in them, for the example they've been to the surrounding Christians who look to them as being an example, how they've turned from idols to the true and living God, but in the process, he's had to challenge them on areas where they weren't doing so well. He's had to challenge them about some within the church who were being lazy and idle, some who were still caught up in the prevailing sexualized culture around them. But what a price for him to end. May the God of all peace sanctify you through and through, and may he keep you blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. And the last words he writes are, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
It was the grace of Christ which saved them. It's only by the grace of Christ that will sustain them and grow them until one day they are with Jesus. And then when they are with him, the peace that they have pursued so long in this world will be experienced in its full perfection when there will be no hostility, no pain, no suffering with one another and perfect and complete peace with one another and perfect and complete peace with God for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we are to be caring for one another in all areas to to the whole person. Uh, We thank you that you are at work to sanctify us through and through. And we pray you would continue to work to that effect and that we would be willing subjects. Lord, we thank you that, that you have a place kept in heaven for us, for those who are trusted and those who belong to Jesus. And Lord, we thank you, uh, if there be anyone who does not know Jesus, that that very hope and that promise can be theirs too. So learn to trust and depend upon Jesus' death to settle and to pay for the offence of our rebellion against you. Help us to live lives that show something of uh, that we belong to, the God of all peace. Help us to love one another in a way which reflects um, your love. And Lord, work in us and help us to, to share that hope with those who don't yet know you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.